There's a place where lovers go to cry their troubles away, and they call it Lonesome Town, where the broken hearts stay. You can buy a dream. Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I will be finishing up the coverage of Stephen King's novel It, which I started a bunch of episodes ago, um, you know, but I've been covering this particular uh, book for the last 10 episodes, or at least 10 episodes. I was doing some Civil War stuff in between there. But uh, yeah, now we're going to finish it up with the final few chapters and the epilogue chapters. Um, and and I guess give you my final thoughts about the about this uh, book. So obviously these final chapters cover the the final confrontations between it and the losers in in both timelines and like um, the and like chapter nineteen, uh, which I discussed in the last episode. These chapters flip constantly in time between. Um, between 1958 and 1985 and again it's quite effective how it all kind of converges on one almost like simultaneous moment in time um you know but it's because of memory memory allows that that simultaneity and it doesn't really even end with the um with the 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 final defeat of it in both timelines because there's uh there's a lot of aftermath we need to discuss here so anyways, let's just jump into it because I, I think I might end up having a lot to say here. Um, all right. Um, so start out with uh, chapter 21 is called Under the City. Um, and it um, basically involves this, uh, you know, the losers entering the sewers and approaching its lair. And this chapter ends in both timelines with the arrival at the, at the lair of it. So, um, like I did with chapter 19, I think I will just uh, break up the two timelines because that's a little bit easier to handle than constantly flipping back and forth. Um, so, we start out actually with the first sections with uh, from its point of view. Um, and it realizes that the first time in forever, something is different this cycle. Something went wrong. And that comes from the confrontation at the at the house on Niebold Street, which uh, where he, it was almost killed by the losers. And it's not just that near defeat. It's something um, deeper than that, emotional. Um, so here we have this cosmic entity uh, that's kind of beyond human comprehension, human emotions and things like that. But it is feeling those human emotions. It's feeling fear and pain specifically and for the first time in its existence. Um, and it considers the possibility that the, it that the children are actually agents of the turtle, um, another cosmic entity, which isn't really well defined here. It's a certain, you might have a better idea of what the turtle is supposed to be from the Dark Tower books. Um, but I think we're not quite in the same universe here. I, I know, I think it is one of the novels that King bolds in his Dark Tower books. It's like a relevant book. Um, and I think you could consider like maybe it is from Todash space. If you've read Dark Tower, you know what those, those terms mean. But, you know, the turtle is just one of, of 12 guardians of 
of the beams, and those aren't even fully supernatural. They seem to have some kind of technological aspect. So, um, but there is that saying of like the turtle holding up the earth from the Dark Tower novels. So, um, it, it's kind of like the creator god, I guess. There's something almost platonic in the way the turtle is presented at, and maybe like like it, it can't really be conceived of or understood by human sensation. The turtle's sort of the same way, but the turtle's more of the creator, and it is more of a destroyer, obviously, although a very localized destroyer. Um, um, but it desperately wants to get revenge on the children, so it is calling them into the sewer to, to kill them. It thinking the sewers is where I can confront them on confront the children on, on, on its own terms. Um, but I think that maybe the children are be are more than being backed by the turtle, but also by that other. Now, what is that other? Well, the, this might be Gan. Again, that's kind of a Dark Tower reference, which is King's version of God or the White, uh, as sometimes talked about. Now, obviously, at this point in King's career, the Dark Tower is not that well fully developed. I think he's only published Drawing of the Three by this point. Maybe not even that one. I think maybe he's only had the gunslinger out at this point. Drawing of the Three might be 1986 or so. So it's... Uh, and then the question is, how much of the Dark Tower did King have worked on his head? Obviously, 1999 changed how King was going to approach the, the climax and end of the Dark Tower. So it's pretty obvious he didn't have the whole thing mapped out right certainly not king's own participation in the dark tower mythos was not you know writing himself into that story that wasn't something that was on his mind before the accident um but um but thematically i think there's a consistency in the dark tower i don't know if he had the whole cosmology worked out with gan and the turtle and the the certainly the wastelands isn't published till almost a decade after this so a decade maybe six years so, yeah, let's. That some of this is kind of retconning as readers that that we'll do with an author like King, who who gives us the ability to do that through later works, and I think that's fine. Um, but um, and maybe when he, when King was writing this, he didn't really want to go much farther. Um, so I guess if the turtle and it are sort of, you know, it's back to a Neoplatonic kind of reading of this. If the turtle and it are are emanations of Gan, of, of that other, that's that's pl plausible maybe in the cosmology. Again, it's not that well worked out. It doesn't really matter. Um, but they go into the sewer. The, the children go into the sewer, and we saw how they were pushed in by the bullies and by Beth's father and, and other forces in the town itself into the sewer. And they're armed only with 10 matches. And that's all they have. Um, and that's going to be parallel later uh, in the 85 timeline. And the losers go deeper and deeper into the sewers, fleeing Henry. And they keep hearing Henry going increasingly mad, as well as the other bullies, um, kind of pushing them farther and farther into the sewers. Now, all this is, is actually, I think it is uh, shown here, the, the death, or at least it's described maybe from Henry's point of view, the death of the other bullies, um, Belch and, and Victor Chris. And we... And, so we might, I think we get a bit of that um, as well. But the only ones to come out, or well, the losers all come out, but then Henry is the only one of those who makes it out. Um, but they're being pushed in, obviously. 
Now, Eddie, who has this good sense of direction, which I guess is somewhat foreshadowed earlier in the story, several times he, of course, becomes the cab driver because uh, he has good directions. He, he starts a company that that's a, a limo company. Um, but I think also like the fact that he liked trains and some of his pastimes, it's hinting at that he had this kind of sense of direction and geography. Um, which is kind of interesting because it should be Bill who has like the maps of the sewers, right? Because he's the one whose father works for the public, you know, dairy public works and probably would maybe be able to tell them, oh, this is where to go in the sewers. That's kind of what the movie does too. But it's actually Eddie who intuitively is able to uh, use this kind of sense direction to guide them in the right direction. Uh, so he leads their exploration of the sewers. And again, they only have 10 matches, I think. Um, like half of a book. Um, they run into the body of Patrick Hoxetter, which was killed by, he was killed by it, and the body was dragged into the sewer. Um, and that same body is going to appear later. And then they just go deeper and deeper into the tunnels. And there's different layers of tunnels as the town was built. And eventually they get into uh, more, more primordial, pre-human tunneling beneath the even sewers. So it's a really great effect. Um, Wonderfully done, I think, as they get deeper and deeper, and the and the, and the, the like. What the material the tunnels are made of is changing. The smells change; it gets smelling older and deader, and, and all these things. And eventually, they they get closer and closer to the layer of it. We don't have to get into the details of how that that goes, but they eventually face it in a couple of forms before they get to the layer. Um, the first form they they face is a kind of something that's from Richie's mind and that's the giant eye which is actually from a movie the the crawling eye which I actually glanced at it's it's on YouTube you can actually glance at the crawling eye of course you gotta view it from the the, the minds of a 1950s child and again dance macabre tells you kind of how to read these texts and it helps us understand it quite a lot uh, I mean it the novel um, because it does do a good job, I think, of getting us in the head of what chill, boomer children, how they experience film and how they experience horror on the film. Um, but anyways, they encounter the, this giant eye, the crawling eye, and Eddie shows his real heroism here. He uses his aspirator to damage it in this form and then rallies his friends to destroy the eye and smash it just by kind of kicking it and beating it down. Um, that doesn't kill it, obviously. I think, again, as I said many times, that's where the movie kind of ends. It's, it's, of course, it's the Pennywise form of the movie because they just can't get enough of that form for whatever reason. There's just even in the when they they show it in the eighty or the modern timeline. I guess it's it's contemporary, and they show the spider form, which is the best the human mind can kind of conceive of its form. Ah, they have to give it Pennywise's face, right? I, I guess that's making use of the actor, I suppose, who did do a decent job of that, I think. But it's like over-reliance on the clown, man. You don't need to do that. That's missing the point, partially. The, the clown is just one of many aspects. Notice I never, almost never say Pennywise here, unless I'm specifically talking about that avatar. Because it's... Um, I just don't like that. I, I even got bothered with King in, on, on Twitter. I think I responded or quote tweeted him at least, about him using Pennywise when he means it. It's a mistake I do not like. So anyways, they destroy the eye, uh, and then they enter a large cavern. So they're in the kind of these primordial caves and caverns, 
and they're attacked by Mike's bird. And one thing I forgot when I was rereading this, I should have mentioned this before, is the reason the bird is in Mike's mind is it was something he experienced as a child, like as a toddler, a bird that kind of freaked him out and scared him. But remember, the bird is also the form that Mike's father encountered it as at, the, at the fire of the black spot. So there's some like time traveling coolness going on here. Or uh, uh, simultaneity, I think. It's like a... Some philosopher could, I think, have fun with this book and, and the way time is played with here and determinism and all that. It and philosophy. There'll be a book at Barnes & Noble someday if it's not already there. Um, now, Stan's the one who stops this through disbelief. Now, what's going on here, obviously, is we're having particular avatars that are targeting certain losers. The eye is targeting Richie. The bird is targeting Mike. But it's other characters that defeat it in those forms, which shows that kind of they're coming together as a team, as a group, and they're experiencing the same avatars and they're defeating it through the weapons they bring. Stan stops it simply through disbelief, which is really well done here because that's, of course, a running theme of Stan's character. He's the one we maybe get the, the, the least window into because of the suicide. And we can't really experience his remembering of events directly. But that skepticism is what is his power and stands basically says i don't believe in you um and that that stops the bird in this track then they find a small door with a symbol on it and the symbol is actually where did i see that um that symbol used again it's in one of the later like the king books from the last decade was it in was it in later because i know um it is referenced in later. It might be in, in that, but that symbol, you, you can see that it's actually written and printed in the book. But it, it doesn't have much meaning. It's just the, the meaning is given to it by the children when they observe it. And it's a small little door that they have to, even as children crawl through. Um, and there's a great line here where someone asks, like, it could be locked. And then Bill, I think, says, like, doors like this are never locked. It's a, it's a great line. Uh, and the door opens up into its lair. So that's what happens in the 85 timeline. And it's really fun. It's a really, really great section of the book, I think. Now, the 85 uh, timeline, it's a little more complicated. There's a little bit more that happens. But anyways, it is. we also start with its uh, point of view. And it is confident that it can defeat the losers. Um, and basically, its argument is they are adults. They have lost their imagination. They're weakened by two of their members. And, and it has taken Audra into the deadlights. This might be the first direct mention of the deadlights as kind of the real form of it um, or some aspect of its real form. So it is quite confident. Um, now, we learn here that Audra's last thought was knowledge that it is a female and therefore capable of reproduction. This is, I always had a question about this. It's like, of course, uh, ben, lay, ben destroys the eggs. Um, and who knows what those children would have been or if one got off, right? That could be a whole novel, right? Um, but I guess we can use she now. If I keep screwing up pronouns, it's so hard to not fall back on it or he. But let's say one of, like, 
Well, I guess here's the problem. Like, it's been doing this for, for hundreds of years and just now decides to have lay eggs. I guess it works um or maybe it's just something thrown in for for fun whatever i do like the i do like the idea that it is female um and that being kind of an added level of threat to it or just kind of like changing our perceptions about the nature of of evil it's still kind of imposing a gender on something that's obviously beyond gender and beyond human capacity to understand like can lovecraftian beings be, be male or female like it's Cthulhu male or female. I don't know. I don't even think you can talk in those terms. Um, it also talks about Mike's bird uh, actually being a, the bird that attacked Mike when he was a child. Um, and it thinks about this because it seems to enjoy the glamours, but its true form is a deadline. So this is actually our best, this section is one of our best windows into its nature and its character. And that's why it's kind of important to dwell on a little bit um and this fills in some plot holes or or they're not plot holes that's the wrong word for it but they fill in holes in in the story that we're not privy to because we don't have characters there um like mike's bird or what happened to tom rogan or what happened to audra but um but that's also something it kills killed tom rogan captured audra took her into the deadlights driving her mad or catatonic or whatever but it understands that its weaknesses, it understands its weaknesses. That's, I think, the other important thing about this section is it meditates on its own weaknesses and why it can be defeated. Still confident it will not be defeated. And here we, we, we see it say very explicitly that it has brought them back. So that was like an ongoing question. Of course, I always known that because I've read this book a few times, but I'm not entirely happy. I don't see how everything fits into that. I'm I'm accepting of it, I guess, for what it is, but I, it still doesn't explain to me why they're rich, right? If you wanted them to stay in Derry, it could have just not let them be rich. I, I guess maybe, maybe it was their experiences as children that made them successful, but I still don't buy that that would work in the modern American economy of the, of the 70s and 80s. There's a lot of luck involved in becoming rich, right? doesn't matter how skillful you are anyways back to these weaknesses so it thinks about how it enjoys children because of the purity of their fears right and we see king here right if there are ten thousand medieval peasants who create vampires by believing them real there may be one probably a child who will imagine the stake necessary to kill it but a stake is only stupid wood the mind is the mallet which drives it home so a great quote here summarizing so much of what the novel is trying to do uh, in the realm of imagination and magic, things like that. So this is actually a section uh, you actually want to read once or twice. It's, it's also fairly, it's fairly long, four pages or so, um, but really packed with uh, important information. So um, now just as before, Eddie's leading them into the sewer. Remember, Eddie's arm is broken, so in both times Eddie had to be hauled down by the other losers. But he's still the one who remembers the directions and where the ways to go. Um, but eventually Bill runs ahead, mad with the hopes of finding Audra. Um, so things are already breaking down. We see things not following the 1958 pattern exactly, and that's going to be an ongoing theme in this in the next chapter, is that it's not 
going to be done the same way. Um, and that's going to provide opportunities for other characters to have their heroic moments. And it's going to be, uh, and it builds suspense and tension in, in the confrontation. If it's just the same, it's kind of, it's, there's no point of having the return at all. Um, now they find the bodies of Belch Huggins and Victor Chris, and I think Patrick Hockstetter's skeletons too. Of course, these bodies are very, very decayed, um, skeletal at this point. Um, one had their head ripped off. Uh, I think when we get Henry, Henry Bauer's point of view, we, we find that like, I think one of them had their head cut off, ripped off by, by it. But anyways, they were killed by it. And again, they're armed only with matches. I think they have more of them this time, but they're still armed only with matches paralleling that. The, now, of course, Mike had prepared a spelunking equipment and things for them to go down there, but they didn't have time to gather them because of the police and what happened to Mike and Audra's uh, being kidnapped and all that. So they're armed only with matches. Um, they find the body of Tom Rogan. Um, and then we have a wonderful section. I love this section. And that is when the people of Derry start to realize something is changing in the city. Um, I talked about this last time about the weather and how it seems the effects of the weather, the effects of these confrontations on Derry happen before the confrontation even happens. Derry is it, so it might be a reflection of its emotions and fears and anxieties. I think that's one way to, to read it. Um, but I just love this section where... Um, I mean, the older residents realize the change first, which makes sense. The older residents are older. They, they're more used to the patterns of dairy, including the pattern of the cycle. They're the ones aware of it. And there's a line here, which I just love, which should be the title of a book. If I ever write a book about Stephen King, it would be this. This would be the title of it. It would be The Old Stand Watch. Uh, and I think that's a very, very close paraphrase or almost word for word of a line in it where... King writes essentially that it's the old who stand watch. They're up earliest. They notice the subtle changes. And I think in this case, it's like the, the bell that, that rings in the church or something doesn't ring that day. And that's only happened like once before. And again, that, was, that period was associated with it as well. And it's just great. It's, it's a great few pages where we, we get uh, a survey of, of, of dairy dairy just being dairy and 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 seeing the pattern of being broke up broken up um here's one dave gardner who had discovered george jembro's mutilated body in october of 1957 and whose son discovered the first victim of this new cycle earlier in the spring opened his eyes on the stroke of five and thought even before looking at the clock on the bureau Grace Church didn't chime this hour. What's wrong? He felt an ill-defined fright. David had David prospered over the years. In 1965, he had purchased a shoe boat. And now there was a second shoe boat in the Dairy Mall and a third up in Bangor. Suddenly, all those things, things he had spent his life working for, seemed in jeopardy. From what? He cried to himself, looking at his sleeping wife. From what? Why are you so goddamn angsty just because that clock didn't chime? But there was no answer. Um, and we get different points of view, including Norbert Keene, um, Edward Thorogood, uh, Rademacher. These are people we've met earlier in the story uh, through discussions, often from the, the early chapters and from the, the interlude chapters. So some of these people are mentioned. Um, 
but yeah, something's going or something's wrong, and they smell it first. They identify it first. Wonderful section. Um, now back in the tunnels, uh, it comes at them as appearing as the angry and vengeful ghost of George, George Genbro. Um, and this is happening 5.01 a.m., right after the bell didn't ring. Got to pay attention to the time a little bit here, too. You know, it doesn't add that much to the story, but it's it's fun. Um, and George just blames Bill, exploiting the guilt that Bill really does feel. It's a real, real guilt that he has. Um, but Bill uses the rhyme. He thrusts his fist against the post, but still insists he sees the ghost to defeat the illusion. And it's a, a pretty great moment for, for, for Bill, one of his high points of his character. And with that defeat, this is paralleling the defeat of the eye and the bird early on, again, done by magic, done by the loser's use of magic. Um, and with this, a massive storm begins to form over Derry. And King's very careful to write that this is like geographically centered just on Derry, like the dome over Chester's Mill is just over Chester's Mill exactly. The, the storm over Derry is just over Derry. Um, probably if you cross the border outside of Derry into the next town over, um, you know, whatever county Bangor's in or whatever, you, you wouldn't have gotten rain. Um, because it, this rain, this storm, is a reaction to its feelings of impending defeat. Now, while this happens, uh, it takes over the body of a nurse in order to try to kill Mike. Um, why it does it at this point, I don't know. Maybe it's a fearful, even though Mike's not there, they're still a group, they're still together. But... Um, but the losers are able to project their supernatural power to Mike and possess him, essentially, just as the nurse is being possessed by it. And he's able to fight off the nurse. And that basically ensures that, that Mike's going to survive the story. It's a nice little moment of tension. But uh, so we have, again, two encounters with it. And in both cases, in, in so four, all four cases, the eye, the bird, Georgie, and... The nurse, the losers are able to use their magic to defeat it, um, which sets up an advantage for them in the upcoming confrontation. In the tunnels, then, the losers arrive at the door, uh, the same door they saw before, and entered the layer of it. So um, that's it. And the chapter ends, the ritual began for the second time. So we're told about the ritual of Chud being used for the second time before we even witness the first ritual of Chud, which is uh, Bravo King. It's really, it's hard to not immediately start the next chapter. All right, let's talk about the ritual of Chud, uh, chapter 22. Uh, again, I'll split up these chapters uh, or this chapter into the 19, 1958 and 1985. But remember, it's constantly pay, like one page is in 58 and the next page will be in 85. He's constantly flipping back and forth. And within that, there are memories so we so again we're being reminded by the author here that these characters are remembering the past as they're kind of re-experiencing it almost in real time so anyways 1958 they see it as a giant spider in its lair uh stan realizes that it is female that's a fact that they're not able to recall because stan is dead in in 85 they eventually remember it too in their own way but um they lose that access to that memory. How much, how would it have been different if Stan survived? You know, I think they would have just had 
more of their memories pieced together. But I think ultimately it would have unfolded similar. I don't think like the movie tries to make Stan's death have some kind of meaning and it's kind of dumb. Um, like, oh, it helped bring them together or some nonsense. But Stan died out of, he was scared and he was not wanting to go back to Derry. And it's just King does this to start us in the novel with like the power of it, the power of it to, you know, scare the shit out of these people. And it puts the other, it, you know, it puts the bravery of the other characters, you know, it makes it special. Doesn't make any sense what, that he would die, he killed himself just because it would have brought them together. How would Stan even know that the other losers were coming to Derry or would have known about his suicide? It's bizarre. Anyways, I don't want to complain about that too much. This whole nothing here is done well in the, in the movie. But anyways, they see the giant spider. And again, this is just the deadlight or, or the deadlight might be an aspect of its true form, but it's how the human mind can kind of conceive of it. Very, It's very Lovecraftian here. Bill moves up to confront it using the ritual of Chud, the method that he gleamed from books. But he also gains some knowledge, some inspiration from the turtle here. So Bill initiates the ritual of Chud and enters the void. It's really well, it's hard to describe. It's essentially a psychic duel in the void, in the real layer of it. I mean, there's the physical layer of it, but there's also the psychic layer of it. And that's where the duel takes, it takes place. And in it, Bill severely wounds it, largely relying on his, his, his thrust his fist against the post and still insists he sees the ghost's phrase, that little poem. He says, and that is his assault um, on it. And remember, the ritual of Chud is like supposed to be you grab the tongue and see who laughs first, right? But that's just a way of describing this psychic duel. Now, the turtle appears, and I think it happens actually before the blows start going back and forth. The turtle appears to Bill and reveals that the turtle cannot help them, which is, of course, something Stan said early on in the book. Uh, when he first starts remembering, uh, which is again a sign that he did remember more, and, and you know, had Stan arrived, he he would have been able to piece together some of this for them, I think. But he says, "I can't really help help them. You know, I'm kind of on your side, but there's not much I can do. I'm not really on that dimension. I'm just a I'm just a just a creator of the universe. I'm not someone who actually can intervene and do miracles. Uh, and during this talk with the turtle, I think." Bill also realizes the reality of the other. This is not really well developed in this book. I think you can just sort of piece it together from maybe King's other works. Within the context of this book on its own, the other is not. Just imagine it to some other entity that's that's on their side somehow. Maybe that's behind them coming together more so than even the turtle. Now, it's not really possible to describe this encounter entirely. It really is just, I guess, a psychic duel, but it's it's so well done and intense, and actually. And then it retreats. Um, it is soundly defeated, but not killed. Um, and almost immediately after it retreats, the losers begin to lose some of their connection to each other. Um, and they realize they're lost in the tunnels. And Beverly almost immediately comes up with the idea that she should have sex with the other losers 
to reform the bond that they had, which would allow them to escape from the tunnels. And she has sex with each of the boys. Um, and then they find out, they find out that they know how to escape and they're able to escape, uh, not knowing if it is dead or still alive. I'll come back to this scene in a little bit. So that's the ritual of Chud in 1958. It doesn't cover that much physical space. There's actually more spent to like the, the sex scene and the aftermath of that. But one thing that's foreshadowed here is how they will start to lose this bond with each other after it is killed. After it's killed, they're going to forget each other and lose that bond. Uh, I don't know quite how that works with Beverly and Ben's relationship. I guess they'll just remember, oh, we, we were daring we met. Uh, how strange. But they, f they lose their memories of their, of their past. And that was happening in 58, which might be a sign of how close it was to being killed. But anyways, let's jump ahead to 1985. Um, so Bill enters the ritual of Chud the second time. So in both times, it's like immediately they rush into the ritual of Chud, um, but fails to seize its tongue. So whatever that means in the terms of the psychic duel, in terms of the ritual, the seizing of its tongue, Bill's not able to do it. Bill misses. Now, it reveals in the void to Bill. So it has a conversation directly with Bill. And it reveals that it called them back to kill them. Um which is pretty definitive evidence that that's really was its intention. And what King wants to say here is that they were drawn, at least in part, by, by it to, to kill them, to get revenge. I still don't know why. It, maybe it just really has, you know, really can't get over that defeat, right? But really the great moment here is when Richie steps up and enters the ritual using his voice as weapons, using his voices, not the voices, not the voices he uses as an adult, which we're introduced to when we first meet the character as an adult, getting the phone call from Mike. Instead, he's using his childhood voices. So it's so important that it's the childhood voices, it's the Piccaninny voice and the Irish cop voice, and um, and those other childhood voices, his bad voices, his his racist. Uh, voices, his voices that are not any more politically correct, but you know, seem perfectly innocuous to to a young boy playing and exploring with his talent for humor and, and voices and things. Um, but those voices were real to Richie as a, as a kid. They did give him. We're constantly reminded of this throughout the book of how those voices let Richie do things that. He wouldn't normally do. They give him bravery. They give him uh, a certain type of, they give him some courage. They give him new perspectives on things. They, they're so important to his character. And as offensive as these voices are, they're central to his character and his childhood and his growing up. And the fact that his voices become much more kind of bland and less interesting as an adult, they're, they're more politically correct as an adult, right? He's like makes fun of JFK or, or does a, W.C. Fields impression, those kinds of things. But he's not as playful. It takes the playful voices to do that. And that's what Eddie, or that's what Richie, I mean, uses as a weapon. But even that, it was well prepared at the time, it seems. Because even that, Richie begins to lose his grip and is not able to defeat them. So this is when Eddie steps forward, attacking the physical, quote-unquote physical form of it, whatever Eddie's able to like actually see. Richie and Bill are in the void at this point. Um, 
and uses his aspirator the same way he did with the crawling eye um, as a weapon, uh, but loses his arm when he enters it uh, and is fatally wounded, dying just moments later. It is then forced to retreat uh, to uh, somewhere deeper into its physical lair. And now we go back to the dairy town or the city itself and the storm hits dairy, destroying parts of the town and even causing a few deaths. Um, um, like for instance, the, the Irish cop that, that, that Richie was sort of trying to imitate, even though his, the voice isn't directly that of that cop, the one that stopped the dam, but it's kind of a, kind of an exaggeration of the Irish cop voice, I guess, again, through the child's mind. But this, that guy actually yells out what Richie says and has a heart attack and dies. Um, there's explosions, there's, there's fires, there's people leaving the town because of this disaster. It's kind of wild. The old side of the ironworks and all the mall actually like physically explodes. Um, there's a lot of connections to 1958 and that cycle during the disaster that hits the town, like the standpipe being destroyed and all that. So it's another fun scene, but it's just King laying out the, the eucatastrophe like he likes to do in his books at this time. He likes to end his stories with an explosion, destruction. I kind of wish Derry had been more substantially destroyed by this. Maybe not everyone. Maybe he doesn't want to kill everyone in Derry. But, you know, physically destroying the town, that would have been fun. Like Chamberlain, right? Or or Las Vegas in the stand. You know, he was tempted to. I, I, I got a feeling that he was tempted to totally obliterate Derry. But maybe that... Maybe there's some wisdom in letting Derry live. I don't know. I kind of, I still kind of think it, it has to go. If, if it is Derry, how does Derry survive it? Again, I guess a philosopher could break that down for me. All right. Um, anyways, now Ben, Richie, and Bill follow it. Um, Beverly stays behind trying to care for Eddie, who's, who's dying. Um, and already dead by this point, actually. Um, and they run across a massive number of eggs. Because, um, of course, it is a female, it's a lady's eggs, and it prepares to fight to the death. And we get a little point of view chapter, like just as a page long, where it basically is like, this is it. This is the, I fight or die at this point. And it prepares for that. Ben stays behind to destroy the eggs, so it's it's um, going to be Bill and Richie only that make the final kill. The two, like the, I guess the leader and the second in command, if you will, of the, of the group. Um, and we got a nice little scene where Ben's destroying the eggs and it's kind of gruesome, but he's got to light a match and smash the egg and smash the creature that runs out. Um, they're really not well developed. They're, they're kind of easy to kill with your, your, with Ben's big boot. All right. Anyways, now, meanwhile, Beverly remembers how she had sex with the boys in 1958 and tells, um, the story in her mind as a flashback. So not only do we have the back and forth, we have a flashback in Beverly's mind set in 85. So the actual memory of the sex with the other losers is a flashback in the 85 timeline. So maybe, maybe, maybe just possibly it's a figment of her imagination or something. Maybe it's a, a representation of something else that took place. I guess that's, uh one possible excuse i guess one 
little escape for King because this scene is really, really controversial among King fans. I, I, I think probably 99 out of 100 King fans will say this scene is unnecessary, not good, and it doesn't have a place in the book and should be generally skipped by readers or even deleted. And I think King even said maybe I would do this in a different way. Um, I don't know. I, I just, the text is what it is. And I'm not for like retconning too much here. Um, but still, I don't know. I think the few critics of the scene do have a point too, that it doesn't even seem the logistics of it, you know, seem to work. The maturity of the children, the sexual maturity of the children, the fact that they're in the sewer. I mean, there's, there's real issues with this scene. Thematically, it works, though. That's my point. It works with the book's themes of growing up. That their defeat of it is they're crossing over into adulthood. And part of being an adult is sexual maturation, and especially for women, is to be the target of, sex, of, of, of sexuality. It's the way adults bond. Yeah, there's something to this, right? Um, you know, Beverly and Bill both have partners that remind them of their childhood sweetheart in a way, right? Uh, well, well, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Bill has one. Bev is reminded of her childhood through her father. But they both have their adult sexual relations somehow filtered through their experiences uh, sexually as children. Um, but yeah, I'm going to come down. I'll be on the side with people who think this is unnecessary. But... You know, it does seem to have a thematic place in the story. So um, I just, I guess I can kind of stomach it a little bit more by saying, you know, it is presented in the text as, as in an italics. So it's, it's a memory, even though the headline is Love and Desire, August 10th, 1958. So we get the heading from 58, but all the other sections set in 58 are in straight text. Um, the only time we get italics is in the void, uh, its point of view. All right, when King is straight up telling the story of 58, it's not in italics, but this is. So maybe there's a way of interpreting it just using the typeface. Maybe that's our escape from this uncomfortable scene. Maybe she's just remembering something wrong. Or maybe it is a more spiritual kind of encounter. So that's it. That's the ritual of Chud. Um, it's not dead yet, though. Uh, for that, we have to go back. We have to wait for chapter 23 out. Um, this is our, our final chapter of the main text. Um, really, all that's... That's really left of the book. Um, 1958, not much to say. The losers get out of the sewer using a different route than the one they came. Um, their sex, whatever that was, helped them do that in some way. Um, they do need to re remove a cover to get out. Um, and when they leave, they vow to return if it is not really destroyed. And they cut their hands on a piece of glass from a soda bottle to, to make that vow. Now, this section also is in italics. So again, it's presented not as a straight text. I think everything else in the chapter is 1985. Making sure. 
Yeah, everything else is 1985. Just this end of this chapter is set in 1958, and it's all in italics. So it's kind of a continuation of the love and desire section at the end of chapter 22. So again, is there some... Is that just King saying is how it's being remembered by the losers in 85 at that point? I don't know. But anyways, the bulk of this chapter is set in 1985. Um, and we get a major flood hits Derry after this freak rainstorm. And we're even told like the weathermen were surprised by this freak rainstorm. During this flood, the sandpipe standpipe is destroyed. Um, now, many of the places that are destroyed in Derry, like the mall, which was the old site of the Kitchener Ironworks, the standpipe have connection to the themes of the book and the locations where it was active. Um, Bill and Richie track down and kill the quote-unquote spider by essentially destroying its heart. Uh, some again, it's some kind of physical manifestation of 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 something, right? Um, and they use the force of the other to do this. So they're somehow, even if the turtle can't help them, and it at one point says the turtle's dead, the turtle died, um, the other is still active. Um, so they're able to use that power. Um, and it begs for its life. So its final words are a beg, or begging for its life, promising like long life, promising wealth, promising uh, you know whatever it can give, but Bill and Richie are not swayed, and they destroy the heart. And with its death, the power of the other almost immediately begins to leave them. Meanwhile, the destruction of Derry continues. Um, King flips between the scenes in the tunnel and the destruction of Derry, having a lot of fun with it. Um, it's just noticing where the destruction takes place is, is important. Um, People who observe it are characters we have met, like side characters, are, are represent, our representatives of Derry itself are the ones who are observing this. Um, and, and I, you know, I think it's there's some significance, there's no thought given to, the, to this destruction. The survivors, the four survivors collect themselves, secure Audra, I guess five survivors if you include Audra, and they leave. They abandon the body of Eddie in its lair, already beginning to forget about Eddie. Um, although they probably couldn't have done much about Eddie's body anyways, but it's, it's you know, leaving his body, it's, it's a choice they have to make, but they also forget Eddie, so no one knows Eddie's down here. Um, so his wife would never know. Um, but the tunnels begin to collapse around them. We got kind of a little cinematic moment where the tunnel's collapsing, but they manage to get out. And when they get out of the sewer, it's already 11 a.m. And they witness, they're able to see the destruction of the city around them. Now, the last thing they remember is how Eddie got them out of the uh, out of the sewers in 1958. But that's pretty much the last thing they remember. And from this point on, they're going to be engaged in, well, they're going to be forgetting everything that they've, um, they've uh, experienced. So that's it. That's uh, the end of that chapter. We're left with just two short final chapters. The first is Derry, the last interlude. This is uh, Mike's notes again. That's uh, like the last part of his um, book written in June. So that whole thing about the, the losers being internet or interstate fugitives, nothing comes of that. Uh, maybe they were and there was an investigation. I don't think that's ever mentioned. Yeah. Like, I think Richie leaves first, 
Beverly and Ben leave together later, and then Bill stays with Mike, living with Mike, because Audra is catatonic and she has to recover. Um, so the others left pretty um, quickly. Now, she shows very little progress, almost no progress. Her, she's basically been driven mad by these experiences, by experiencing the deadlight, something the other losers don't do directly. Um, Bill and Mike realize that their memories of both 1958 and what just happened to them, their confrontation with it, are fading. Um, I guess Mike's still going to have the book, but I don't know, maybe... Maybe in a supernatural way, the lettering on the, on the notebooks will fade too. I don't know. That'd be nice. But they talk about how other evidence of what happened may exist, uh, like the book, like Derry's history. But that'd be up to future people to piece together because they're not going to be the ones remembering it. Their memories are being lost. Um, as I said, Ben and Beverly leave together to go to Nebraska, which is... Um, Ben's home. Beverly has nothing to really go back to in Chicago. And Mike and Bill discuss how everything that happened was preordained. So we got another argument for determinism being made here. Yep, uh, there's that. There's definitely a, a Stephen King and philosophy book to be written. Let's see who, if anyone already did it. Oh no, I just looked it up. I'm like six years, seven years too late. Um, it's an anthology book of essays uh, from a series, Great Writers in Philosophy or something. All right, there is no God in desperation, tack in the problem of evil. Female subjectivity and carry, sometimes dead is better. King Daedalus, dragon tyrants and deathism. Gan is dead, Nietzsche and Roland's eternal recurrence. Rama of Gilead, Hindu philosophy in the Dark Tower. What's wrong with Roland, utilitarianism in the Dark Tower? Stephen King and Aristotelian friendship. Propaganda and pedagogy for apt pupils. The Shining's overlook as heterotopia. I should read this book. It might be fun. The Broadcast Dystopia, Power and Violence in the Running Man and the Long Walk. Stephen King and the Art of Horror. Uh, another one about The Shining. Come on, there's nothing on it here. Time Belongs to the Tower. A lot of Dark Tower, obviously. But nothing on it. So whatever. Maybe I'll get this book. Let's see. 20 bucks. I think I might check it out. Anyways, there should be a chapter on determinism. Now we get to the final, final epi the epilogue of the book. Bill Denbro beats the devil too. If, in case you forgot, one of the early chapters of the book is called Bin Den Bell, blah, 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 Bill Denbro beats um, the devil one. Well, if you're wondering where is part two, it, we got to wait till the end. And here's why Silver's return is so important to the 1985 timeline. So Bill is still in Derry sometime later um let me get the exact date if i can all right it's summer we're just told it's summer so imagine a month later because the last interlude chapter is written in june so a month after the events of um of the, most of the book the 85 timeline anyways so it's a book it's imagine it would be two months later right so bill is living with mike hanlon uh, his wife is still catatonic and then Bill it's wonderful Bill examines his aging body in the mirror right he's got like all the like uh, the white chest hairs and the fat belly right Bill I, I don't think I talked about Bill's adult description but of course he's bald and he's got like kind of a beer belly of sorts um, and this is of course the suggestion of his childhood leaving him which is sort of happened but 
but he's lost even the childhood that was, was regained by the events of, of May of 1985, this return to Derry. And he's forgotten most of what's happened. He only vaguely understands, but he fears what he needs to do. He knows what he needs to do, but he fears that he's too old to do it. And um, it's so beautiful. This is such a beautiful ending of the book. Um, he actually dresses as a child. He puts on children's clothes, which was something, it's a little subtle mention earlier in the book that Richie packed only kids' clothes. Now, what does that mean? I, You know, adults, can they have kids' clothes? Well, they can have clothes that makes them look like a kid, right? Like the shorts and a t-shirt or something like that. That's what Bill does. He dresses up as a child. He does some repairs on silver, and he remembers Derry as it was when he was a child. He psychically prepares himself for what he has to do. He prepares Audra by putting her on the bicycle. And then he rides through town and tries to invoke his childhood self, his memories, what's left of them. He tries to invoke them, shouting Hyo Silver away, which was his kind of catchphrase when he was a kid. So we, we heard that so many times throughout the course of the novel. Um, and he summons his childhood. And it's this, he's this middle-aged man biking through a, the, the town with this woman, you know, yelling as a kid. He becomes a child again for a brief moment. And the same way he did in 85 when he went to rescue Save Eddie by getting the aspirator. And there it didn't matter, right? Well, I guess maybe it mattered to a degree, but it was, you know, that, that was a placebo. This is real magic that he invokes here. He erases the devil. He ignores the shouts and laughs of observers. Now Bill, now fully a child. The child once again is saving the adult, rides through Derry, and Audrey becomes coherent. Bill's stutter, which was returned, is lost. And then Bill thinks about writing a novel about his childhood. And that is how the story ends. Um, I don't think I have too much actually more to say about the book. It speaks for itself. It's, it's an amazing text, and I know many of you have read it, and it's one of his most popular books. But I, I still think it was worthwhile to reflect on the book and give my thoughts on it uh, in the long form that this particular podcast format I'm using allows me to do. Um, so, yeah, I think I don't think there needs to be a recap. Um, just wonderful book. I find very few faults in it. The faults that I have found I've mentioned over the course of this, this series. So coming up next, I will be returning to the Civil War and I'll be sent focusing my energies on the Civil War series for the next seven episodes, finishing that up. I've already kind of prepared my notes on for at least two episodes of that. So I'll be able to record those this week and get a good start on that. I'm hoping to finish that up in the next few weeks and then moving my focus to uh, to Mark Twain. I'll start there with the I'll, I'll, I'll read them volume by volume. The Library of America did not publish this chronologically, like with the Henry James. Even those aren't really truly chronological. Um, it's, it's more by genre, and it's divided in different ways. So I'm going to start with the Mississippi writings, which will be um, Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, Life on the Mississippi, and then Puttingham Wilson. Um, and there might be another novel. I think it's those four. Uh, and then I think I'll do the travel logs, Innocence Abroad, 
and then maybe the short stories and and journalism i don't know i'll i'll, I'll come up with a plan uh, in the next month or so about how i'm going to approach it. but i'm going to start with the mississippi writings and it's going to take probably almost a year to get through that um but i'm looking forward to it it's going to be a a quite an enjoyable deep dive into into mark twain hopefully maybe i can finish it in seven months if i record at the at a higher pace which is something i'm always saying i want to do but i've actually been doing it the last few uh few weeks so i think i'm getting a little bit of my energy for this back but first we have to get finished up that civil war series that that's been that i've been stalling on but i will finish it up over the next probably three weeks and then uh, be ready to share my thoughts about uh, the adventures of tom sawyer with you all right um that's it for now let me know if you have any thoughts at all about it about stephen king if there's any other stephen king books you might want me to explore do a deep dive on i'd be willing to do it i have them all and i'm just i'm actually finishing up my stephen king read through right now i'm on um i'm at the bizarre of bad dreams so i'm getting to the to the end of that that journey so if there's anything there you might want to hear me talk about, let me know. Send me a, send me an email uh, or on anything else you want me to cover. Uh, I'm thinking ahead a year later when I'm done with Mark Twain, anything you want to hear me discuss. So that's it for now. I will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Going down to Lonesome Town Where the broken heart stays Going down to Lonesome Town to cry my troubles away.